Hello everyone, welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast, where we look back at what's been happening in pharmacy over the last week or so. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine. Joining me on the pod this week on our one-year anniversary are Rob Daricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of our daily news service, Pharmacy Network News, Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist, and Helena Beard, editor of Training Matters. So, full house. This time last year, pharmacy teams were facing the Easter weekend from hell at the height of the first wave of the pandemic. It's a lot calmer this time around, thank goodness, and there's plenty of good news to talk about for a change. So let's make a start with Good Week, Bad Week. So, Arthur, let's start with you. Who's had a good week? Good morning, Richard. Uh, I'm going to say it's been a good week for pharmacists. This comes on the back of our exclusive survey finding that uh, over 90% of pharmacists believe the sector should be at the heart of any uh, yearly COVID booster jab service should this come about. Um, they told us that, you know, despite their concerns around workload and capacity, which of course, you know, that was an issue before the pandemic, and uh, despite sort of suspicions around how on board the government and the NHS are, they're really keen to step up to the plate. They think it'd be good for the, the profession and the sector's standing. Um, of course, um, a lot a lot of the pharmacists that 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 we surveyed expressed the hope that um, in a future commission service, the the minimum vaccination quotas would be relaxed because they're quite strict at the moment. Uh, I think the thing that stood out the most for me um, was that uh, patients are telling pharmacists that this is what they want, what what the patients want. Uh, one pharmacist said, although this would be a lot of work for us, I believe the public would welcome it hugely. Uh, another one said they're already getting countless requests for vaccinations from members of the public. And that's something that, that we've heard a lot from our readers, uh, even before the survey. Um, there are sort of recurring themes like sort of convenience, accessibility, all the things that, you know, that we always hear about pharma- pharmacies. And um, and also people pointing out that, you know, that pharmacies are sort of really the best place often to reach deprived communities and people from ethnic minorities. Uh, where there are concerns around sort of low uptake of the vaccine potentially. Um, there were some that were more hesitant. You know, they said, you know, workload is a big concern already. I'm not sure I can fit this in. Um, but on the whole, people were really keen, really enthusiastic and um, sort of keen for PSNC to, to make a go of this. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unfold before, you know, we don't even know if there is going to be a yearly COVID uh, service because we're right in the middle of of this one, but um, but 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 you know the message that we got was that people are really keen for for PSNC to to make a go of it and um, get uh you know high quality service commission from the NHS. Yeah, very interesting story. This Arthur, it it, it was our, our exclusive, as you say. I, I was particularly struck by the public enthusiasm for this type of service, and yeah, pharmacists clearly are ready, willing and able to play a, a full part in any annual COVID job programme in the future, according to this research. I mean, it strikes me, pharmacists have shown what they can do with flu, haven't they? Hugely impressive growth figures for the flu service this year that I think uh, Simon Dukes drew attention to in his latest blog. So, yes, Arthur, this, this survey just goes to show, doesn't it? Sector just needs to be given the opportunity and the means, and it would make a uh, a really good go of this. What did you think, Rob? Yeah, I think it's a really great story, Arthur, and um, uh, you know, a nice piece of work by um, Adrian and the gang at CIG Research. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, th- I think Arthur's absolutely right. And particularly in a week when we've also got the announcement that two thirds of pharmacies in Northern Ireland are actually now actively giving COVID jabs. It does beg the question, doesn't it? Um, I'm going to say really something that I wrote uh, probably six weeks ago in a leader. I think I think the next the next step really ought to be to work out how, because the big challenge for England is always scale, and it's always things like supply lines and and actually turning um, interest and enthusiasm into an implementation plan. And I fully accept Arthur's point that we don't know whether there's going to be the requirement for an annual booster. Um, but the work to the work that needs to be done to work out how you do this, how you'd implement something like this across the whole country, um, with you know, given the numbers probably upwards of, of a half of all pharmacies either ready to go now or you know could go at you know at a very short notice into this um that's quite a big job and i think it's it's all very nice to talk about potential and and the fact that people would um but you also need to put a bit of flesh on the bones of how that would actually work um and i think some of that thinking needs to be done now um really to 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 sort of turn this into not something that's just potential but into an actual proposal with some substance to how it would be done and you know all the stakeholders all the partners that would be needed to be on board to make something like this happen, um, given the number of external vaccination points we're talking about here. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right, Rob. We we have talked about this on the pod before, haven't we? If this is the way that we're going, it looks very likely that that we will need you know annual um, booster jobs. Then the planning needs to start now, doesn't it? Really needs to start now because you can't just get a service like this up and running. Um, with you know a couple of weeks' notice, so yes, one for PSNC to to throw into the negotiations, really. Um, but really interesting story. Thanks for that, both. Uh, so Neil, let's go to you. Who's had a good week, week for you, Neil? Yeah, thanks, Richard. I, I've moved away from COVID uh, this week, um, and I've gone for an, a, a groundbreaking new academic paper on antipsychotic medication withdrawal. Um, which uh, is a very interesting paper for those of you who uh, want to read it. It's, been, it's published in Schizophrenia Bulletin, and it was um, compiled by the US, UCL and King's College London researchers. Um, now, they've, I, must, I, must, I don't know a hell of a lot about this, this, this area of, of medicine. Um, it's a hugely complex uh, area. Um, but uh, I was a little bit surprised some of the, some of the things they were saying as uh, being groundbreaking or, or, or entering new, new territory but nevertheless this is what they, they're saying um, and they provide the first ever as they say the first ever scientific guidance on how patients can gradually reduce their use of these drugs with minimal risk of relapse um, so the guidance basically uh, recommends that patients stop antipsychotics uh, cautiously by small amounts with three to six month intervals between reductions in dosage before it is reduced further and it also recommends liquid versions of the drug or small dose formulations now as I said it's all very interesting stuff and I uh, I recommend anybody who with an interest in this area read up on, on this paper by UCL and King's College London. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, it, one of the other things that actually did really interest me um, that came out from this, and maybe this is common knowledge, but it certainly interesting, caught my eye, was that, you know, one of the reasons they claim that psychiatrists have been reluctant to get patients to stop taking antipsychotics is because there has been no established guidelines on how to do it, on, on how to do so. It sounds obvious to, to say so, but it, but this is something that caught my eye. Of psych, psych, one of the jobs of psych, psychiatry and psychiatrists is to is to help people stop taking medicines, uh, um, and and this is 
This is one of the things they've, they've picked out. So um, I, I picked out this paper by UCL and King's College. I, um, very interesting. Uh, antipsychotic medication withdrawal. Good week for, for, the, for the team down there. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? They've repeated calls over the years for, for antipsychotic drugs to be gradually withdrawn with particular patient cohorts. But, yeah, prescribing levels still too high and, and withdrawal isn't really happening either, as you say, Neil. Um, I think there's definitely a role for pharmacists in reviewing antipsychotic prescribing and, and supporting those patients coming off medication, which, as you say, is a really difficult process. Actually, would be perfect for a targeted MUR, thinking about it. So be interesting to see whether this paper does lead to to a change in, in prescribing practice, really. Did you um, see the paper, Rob? Did you read it? No, I didn't, but I really enjoyed listening to Neil there. A um, couple of things occurred to me. I, I agree with you, Richard. It's been a long time we've been talking about this kind of thing. I remember back in the 80s um, writing a story uh, somewhere, I can't quite remember where, about um, antipsychotics and pharmacists raising raising the issue of withdrawal and concerns about how to do it and all that, and being told that we should really not talk about that too much because it would upset doctors. Um, so at least we've come as far as that. Um, I think the important thing is uh, is to turn that into turn that into a service really. And um, if anybody is interested out there, uh, there was some work done back in the early 90s by the Department of Health looking at the role of community pharmacists and supporting people with mental health problems out in the community. Um, the research paper is around. I've got a copy of it somewhere. So if somebody would, anybody would like a copy of that, I'm sure I can dig it out. Yeah, I remember that. I also remember, do you remember when Jonathan Mason was the clinical pharmacy czar? Yeah. At the uh, at the Department of Health, and I think he led a piece of work on on antipsychotic prescribing and, and trying to optimize it and and withdraw withdraw patients um, safely. So there's quite a body of research out there. Um, but like Neil said, it's interesting that it's not changing prescribing practice yet. Uh, but it could be a role for pharmacy there. Uh, they, check out the research. I think um, I think there could be some really good work that pharmacy could do in this area. Uh, so thanks for that, uh, Neil and Rob. Helena, let's go to you. Uh, who's had a good week for you, Helena? Um, so I've gone for the UK Health Security Agency. Um, so after the announcement in August that Public Health England was being scrapped, um, the government has announced that its replacement uh, or part of its replacement, the UK Health Security Agency, um, will begin work in April. Um, so the UK HSA, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but um, it's been described as a health protection body and it combines some of the elements of Public Health England with the Joint Biosecurity Centre and NHS Test and Trace. Um, its primary function is to ensure the UK can respond quickly and at greater scale to deal with pandemics, infectious diseases and other future health threats, um, initially focusing on, obviously, the fight against covid Unlike its interim organisation, the National Institute for Health Protection, which I do think is a better name, but sadly that wasn't up to me, um, that was created in August under Baroness Dido Harding. Um, this organisation, on the other hand, will be run by Dr Jenny Harries, the current Deputy Chief Medical Officer, who was just brilliant with her front contributions to the daily briefings during the first lockdown. Um, I'm in two minds about this organisation. I know I don't have all of the facts, but in theory, 
a UK-wide body looking at public health is a good thing in terms of offering a coordinated effort. But when so much healthcare decision-making is with the devolved nations, the way COVID has been managed differently um, across those different countries is a prime example. So I'm not quite sure how a UK organisation would successfully operate unless it's just advisory. But then what's the point? (laughs) Would that make a big difference? Um, All in all, though, I think a new organisation under new leadership and with a renewed focus is a positive. And if it does put in that foundation for preventing or limiting future health emergencies across the UK, then that could only be a good thing. Yes, it's it's interesting move, isn't it? It's difficult to say, you know, is it just a rebadging and will it be effective? But like you say, Helena, maybe gives fresh impetus to to, to public health. And and look, we've got a public health crisis in this country, haven't we? If we don't tackle things like obesity, then um, we're not going to get on top of type two diabetes, which means that people are going to be more susceptible to COVID, etc. So you know, we really need to to have a proper uh, system-wide approach to public health in this country, in the UK. Where the devolved nations fit into it yet, yeah, don't know, it's a good point. But generally speaking, who knows, this might be an impetus for change. I think we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Rob, what did you think? Uh, it's. Uh, it would have been nice if there'd been an admission that the uh, strategic error made back in 2012 was being corrected here when they got rid of the Health Protection Agency which I think had um, a number of functions which were quite similar to whatever this new thing is going to be called uh, this week. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think all those things, Helen, those points Helena makes are really important. And I think that uh, UK-wide, um, it's all very easy to have hindsight about these things, but fragmenting the system and constantly changing the names of things and putting things together and then splitting them apart again. Organisational chaos does not help um the real work that needs to be done that runs through all of this so i think it's a it's a welcome move but it's rewriting something that was done 12 years ago uh and i'm i'm also partly with neil i think you know the the track record over the last 10 years of austerity has been to reduce and reduce and reduce the funding going into public health and community pharmacists will have seen that you know the 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 um, the decommissioning of services locally, smoking services, sexual health services. It's all nice to talk a, talk a good game and get some, no doubt, expensive consultants in to, to develop a new logo for the new organisation and to uh, appoint new things. And, you know, Helen is absolutely right. It's good to see um, somebody like Jenny Harris leading this new organisation. Um, but ultimately, the proof of the pudding will be in what happens over the next two or three years, won't it? And whether it actually makes a difference. I think Neil's point about social care is well made. But also, I'd say that, you know, this new Office of Health Promotion, which is taking over other parts of uh, Public Health England's role, um, needs to be given some some real teeth. Um, and, you know, to, to put back some of the stuff that's been taken out of public health. Yeah, n- nobody seems prepared in this country to take the long-term view on public health which you have to do don't you that's the essence of public health I remember when when Lansley came up with those reforms Rob in 2011 2012 and he said that uh, when he took public health 
budgets and, and, and allocated them to, to local authorities. He said these will be ring-fenced budgets, you know, public health spending will be safe. Well, of course it wasn't. It was never going to be. So, you know, until someone takes a long-term view on this and funds these kind of things appropriately, then we're never going to get anywhere. Um, Helena, do you want to come back in on that? Um, yeah, thanks, Richard. So a few days after the details around the UKHSA were announced, uh, the Department of Health and Social Care announced the formation of a separate body under its own remit with a cross-government strategy to bring these health-related uh, issues full circle, um, very similar to Public Health England, um, and that's called the Office for Health Promotion, um, probably why the National Institute for Health Protection name was changed to avoid confusion. Um, but this body will lead national efforts to improve public health policy and the nation's health in general in terms of tackling the top preventable risk factors of ill health and death in the UK. So looking at obesity, mental health, physical activity, sexual health, alcohol, smoking, everything that pharmacy teams are so brilliant at advising on. And certainly in pharmacy, we've been talking about the importance of preventative healthcare for so long. So I think um, this is welcome news. Um, in the announcement, they put out quite a shocking statistic that I'd not heard before, that around 80% of people's health outcomes aren't related to the actual health care they receive, but wider preventable risk factors like diet, smoking, lack of exercise and that kind of thing. So the opportunity for tackling health inequalities and health vulnerabilities, particularly after COVID, as many of these have become more apparent over the last year, is a really positive thing. I think, yes, it could be construed as Public Health England with a new name, but it's a renewed opportunity to really focus on the areas that have come to light as a result of COVID. And for me, that's a really positive thing. Um, hopefully, pharmacy is one of the key parts of the healthcare system that they're going to utilise for the implementation of this organisation's plans. Um, and it'll definitely be interesting to, to hear more detail when it's announced later in the year as, as to how this is actually going to work. Yeah, really good point, Helena. Um, pharmacy teams, of course, have a huge role here and potentially could, could play an even bigger role going forward, exactly as, as you say. So, yeah, good point. What did you think, Rob? I think it's uh, it's interesting that, that the the emphasis on health inequalities, which I know governments over the years have, have really struggled with going right back to the um, the suppression of the uh, the Black Report in, um, in the 1980s. It's a really challenging one, but it, there's a link here to the the new health bill and the creation of um, integrated care systems because one of their key areas of focus apparently is going to be health inequalities and I think uh, that's an interesting challenge for the sector to get its head around um, thinking health inequalities as an issue rather than thinking about health and health services. Um, you know when you start looking at things from a slightly different perspective you maybe have to change the way that you frame what you could do um, uh, I think that there's a there's clearly a link here between this uh, the emphasis in this announcement of health inequalities and the and the ICS development piece which is uh, also in full swing yeah thanks Rob that was a really good discussion uh, I enjoyed that um, okay moving on a good week for me um, quick one uh, it is good week for Covid testing from pharmacies in England. Yeah, there's a new commission service. Oh, yes. Contractors would be able to claim up to 450 quid for signing up to a new advanced service involving the distribution of COVID-19 lateral flow tests to asymptomatic individuals. 
Uh, we reported on this earlier on in the week. I, I don't know about you, everyone, but this came completely out of the blue to me, and I don't think contractors had much notice either. But, you know, it's a good idea to distribute test kits from pharmacies, especially to harder-to-reach groups as we enter this this next phase of the pandemic. And I know, Neil, you've been pushing for this from the outset. So good news for once on the COVID testing front, and that's something uh, I don't think I've ever said before on the pod. So now we're going to play a short clip where I talk to Raj Nutan, head of Alfega Pharmacy, about the Symbol Group's COVID vaccination programme, which we reported on last week. Soon, around 60 members of the virtual chain of independence will be offering COVID-19 vaccinations in locations throughout the country. And this is what Raj had to say. Thanks, Raj, for joining us on the pod. So tell us about Alfega's COVID vaccination programme. Hi, Richard. Um, First of all, let me say thank you for inviting me to have a quick chat with you today. It's much appreciated. Um, So in terms of the Alfaga COVID vaccination programme, we started back up Christmas, really. So when it was apparent that um, the devolved countries started to look at the role of pharmacy in COVID-19 vaccination services, we started supporting our members. And there's a number of our members who came to us um, asking for support. And that varied from helping them with the application um, to NHS England. So predominantly it started off in England um, and then it resulted in providing more practical support, Richard. So it could be clinical logs, standard operating procedures, making sure um, they had access to the practical training. So we used a a provider company for that called ECG. Also involved providing all the materials, so social distancing material, um, posters, um, various sort of collateral so it did vary from conception was to support our members and then providing the practical support and then ultimately um, we were hands-on so we have a team of 10 business mentors out in the field and all of them were volunteering um, in our member pharmacies so it it was quite a really good sort of cradle to grave solution we we sort of came up with for our members and the good thing about our network over a thousand pharmacies we can learn from each other so actually throughout December and January, the amount of support we gave to our members to apply to become a COVID centre, we learnt as we went along. So it, it, was, it was really good. It's really, really enjoyable, really fantastic. And it's really good to put something back in the community. Yeah, it sounds a, a really positive venture, actually, Raj. I mean, how many of your members are, are providing jobs at the moment? And, and is that set to expand going forward? So obviously we started off with 10 or 15 back before Christmas. And as of as of yesterday, if you look to how many of our Alfaga members, predominantly in England, were providing a, a COVID vaccination service, it's over 50 now. And we've got another sort of 10 to 15 who've been approved, ready to start. And they're just waiting for a sort of official start date from NHS England and um, a date for the vaccine supply. So um, it's a good number, um, getting over 50. We had um, our first member start in Wales um, two weeks ago. So that was really good news. And we're seeing how it rolls out in Wales as well, COVID vaccination services. Um, and as you're aware from a podcast I heard from yourselves um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I think um, Harry or uh, Malcolm was on. I understand in Scotland, it's still early days in terms of um, evolving pharmacy and COVID vaccinations. But again, we've got members in Scotland who we, we, we would support with the learns we've had in England as well. And what's been the reaction of of customers uh, to having their jobs at a, an Alfega pharmacy? 
So to be honest, it's it's been phenomenal, really. If you, if you look at what the government have done, um, you've got the mass vaccinations um, sites, which are predominantly the main sources of vaccinations. And then you've got our members um, and they're doing a mixture of church halls or um, leisure centres or actually if they've got sufficient space, we've been doing it in their consultation rooms. And the community feel, I can't sort of express how much that community feel I've experienced myself supporting our members. It's just like it brings the community even further together. Um, and the fact that it's a local independent pharmacy or a local community pharmacy, they can ask questions about the vaccine hesitancy. You've got pharmacies in local deprived areas as well where vaccine uptake is not huge. So again, I think that network's really good. And it's really important, I think, all the key stakeholders in government and NHS recognise that having a local community pharmacy to support the vaccination rollout is really good because it, getting that buzz when you're in there, and I think I think Richard, you said you, you went the other day, I think it was your mother or father-in-law had the vaccination and you felt the buzz yourself when you went in there. And it's, it's a really good, good feeling, Richard. No, absolutely. Um, oh, you mentioned earlier on, Raj, um, the, the power really of the, of the network in terms of providing COVID vaccinations and the potential to do a lot more. Are our Fagan members able and willing to offer an annual COVID jab like flu at some point in the future? No, absolutely, Richard. I think um, there's no doubt about it. Um, community pharmacy is well-placed in terms of the local communities, in terms of supporting an immunisation programme, be it flu, um, be it COVID. Um, I was interested in the CIG research you published that there's 92% of pharmacies would like to see um, an annual COVID vaccination programme in their pharmacy. Um, and that supports the members who we've been speaking to in terms of they would like to see the same as well. Um, I think the challenge is going to be, um, and reading your research, I think it was 88% what felt though that the government and sort of the NHS officials didn't see pharmacies as an integral part of primary healthcare. And I think that's going to be a challenge, Richard. And, and really, I'm a quite strong advocate. Community pharmacies, such a strong player, and it really needs to be recognised in primary healthcare. And things like doing the COVID vaccination boosters, if they do come around in September, pharmacies ideally placed. Um, we're trained up, we're qualified, we're ready, we're able, we've got the good links with the community and really we can dispel those myths, Richard. So I think absolutely, I think community pharmacy, Alfega members, we're ready to do it. My thanks there to Raj Newton from Alfega. More and more pharmacies joining the vaccination effort now, which is great to see. Uh, good luck to all of them doing a fantastic job. And we'll release the full interview with Raj in a separate In Conversation with podcast after Easter. OK, we've done good week, so let's do bad week. Arthur, let's go to you first. Who's had a bad week for you? Bad week for the UK-wide registration exam for pharmacists, uh, which was supposed to be rolled out this summer um, to provide consistency for trainees in all four uh, UK home nations. Um, there's been a lot of, well, not a lot, but there's been some fanfare behind this. There was a public consultation a couple of years ago, and it's something that all the regulatory bodies and I think professional bodies are keen on. But what happened is that last week, the Pharmaceutical Society of Northern Ireland issued a statement saying that rather than sync up with the GPHC, which um, the GPHC has had to push its exam back from uh, June to August because of issues with the Pearson View test centres, 
Um, so rather than, you know, push its own exam back, the PSNI has said, oh, actually, we're just going to run our own paper-based exam rather than online uh, in June when we were planning to. Um, and it, which means that the, the UK-wide exam, the first UK-wide exam is going to be happening at uh, in the autumn at the earliest. I mean, you might say it's just, you know, there's just an issue with te- test centers, no big deal. But to me, it just shows you again, the like the stark contrast with um uh, between Northern Ireland, where you know they had to stay staged in, uh, their first COVID exam perfectly successfully last year, and now they're getting re- gearing up for their second, and uh, and uh, uh, Great Britain, where unfortunately the GPT has just been flailing and flailing and uh, just stumbled into fiasco after fiasco, and uh, only staged its first exam a couple of weeks ago. So um, I mean, I, I I can't help. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I can't help but feel that the PS and I. Has said, you know, has seen everything that's going on here, and said, sort of, you know, no thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll stick to to what we're doing for now. Yeah. So they, so they're continuing to offer a paper based exam. Is it Arthur? Is that that's yeah? The... That's right. I mean, they do say. I should say that they're going to um, uh, try and make sure that the the content um, matches that what the the proposals for for the UK wide exam. So my the, the actual content of the exam might be like tweaked from what um from the format that registrants in, registrants in Northern Ireland sat last year. But it is going to be a paper based exam um because I think they, they they were unable to 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 source um or to make arrangements with Pearson View themselves. So they just decided to um to do what they did last year, which was stage socially socially distance exams in in university halls. Uh, obviously, they've got like a, a smaller cohort, a much smaller cohort, so it's easier to be a bit nimble with things like that. Yes, and I also hadn't realised Arthur until I, I read your story that the uh, the GPHC has pushed back its this summer's assessment to the end of July, and it's normally held in June, isn't it? So. Um... I wonder whether that will have, you know, knock on effect on placements and, and, and employers going forward into the next pre-reg um, cycle. Um, it does seem it does seem a bit of a mess, doesn't it? And it's not really the resolution seems far away as ever. The GPAs, it just seems a mess. And like you say, Northern Ireland is just just pursuing its own course and doing perfectly well. Actually, Rob, have you did you read this story? Yeah, I did. I just wanted just to be cheeky. I wondered if uh, if the Northern Ireland regulator might offer the offer the paper exam this side of the water. <laughs> do a bit of an outsourced job. Is is that? Can you do that? Can, presumably, you can. It's a pre-reg applied to do take the PSNI. That's yes. a really. I I don't know. That's interesting really, question, isn't it? It is an interesting question. It's it's, it's worth asking someone. Income generator there. Very much so. Okay, that's uh, we might we might pursue that, Rob. Um, thank you for that. Thank you, Arthur. Um, Neil, who's had a bad week for you? Well, the government have had a bad week, um, Richard, um, particularly Boris Johnson, who um, claimed at the start of this month that uh, this is over the COVID contracts. We're, we're back to that again, um, and he claimed at the start of this month that uh, all, the, all the contracts uh, are there on, on the record, in the record for everyone everyone to see. Uh, funny that because. Yesterday, the government published uh, details of another contract that apparently didn't exist. Um, and this one was a contract handed to Pharmaceuticals Direct, who were handed a £102.6 million contract to provide PPE. Um, the contract started on July the 7th, 2020, and ended on November the 13th, 2020. Uh, there's nothing um, 
there's no suggestion of anything untoward here, of course. But uh, but the but what is the concern is the concern is is obviously that the contract wasn't the details weren't weren't published as, as Mr. Johnson claimed it was. Um, now Joe Morm at the Good Law Project said that uh, it's an interesting quote from him on on Twitter. I, I noticed he said we believe there is more to come from Pharmaceuticals Direct Limited, so watch this space. So I, I'll be very interested to see what comes out. We we just love these stories as journalists, don't we? We I mean, we, 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 we want to know what's going on. We, it intrigues us when government hides things for, from from the public. And uh, this is another yet another little um, instalment in this episode. Um, so look, I mean, Boris has done some great things. I mean, he uh, he's, he's had his critics. Um, I'm particularly impressed with his call for global a global treaty for future pandemics, and that's a great move. And I think he's you know in terms of the uh, future cooperation to avoid. Issues we've seen around supply of vaccines in the EU and the rest of the world. I think he's made that's a great idea, fantastic, Boris. But I mean, come on, you know, the government are just squirming, dodging, shifting around, uh, clearly uh, lying to, to the public, and they're not publishing details of contracts, taxpayers' money, by the way, um, that, that the public have a right to know about. So again, another another um, less than transparent uh, um, episode from the government on the contract. Yeah, Neil, that's the point, isn't it? The worrying lack of transparency here over procurement. I suppose, thinking about it, direct procurement was understandable, wasn't it, in the early stages of the pandemic when the government had to move fast over PPE and competitive competitive tendering would have just taken too much time. But, you know, it's not ideal. And, and I think, as you suggest, Neil, the concern going forward is that these direct contracts, if you like, or contract awards continue when we need to get back to to normal procurement procedures with, with the full transparency that that entails. I mean, that's important, isn't it, both for public confidence in the government and value for money for the taxpayer. So we've just got time for a quick any other business. And Neil, you've seen something. Yeah, so I think continuing the theme of uh, vested interests during the pandemic is... Uh... This story caught my eye in Thailand. Um, as an opposition politician in Thailand, he's been charged with defaming the monarchy um, by accusing the government, the government of relying too much on a company called Siam Bioscience to produce its supply of COVID vaccines. Um, he's criticised the Thai government for mishandling the COVID, the country's COVID vaccination program. Now, what's the catch here? Well, Siam Bioscience are owned by the King of Thailand, uh, so. The politician has been charged with uh, something called lese, I've pronounced this right, lese or les majeste, which in French means to do wrong to majesty. And it carries a maximum, it carries a maximum prison sentence of 15 years. So um, it could be quite an expensive um, criticism from uh, from this opposition MP. Um, uh, so that just caught my eye. I think this is uh, another, another one of these stories that we, as journalists, we love, you, you know, a company owned by the royal family. Yeah. Could you imagine something like that hope happening in this country? I wonder. All right. Thanks for that, Neil. Um, that's it, I think, for another week. So uh, my thanks, too, to Rob, Neil, Arthur and Helena. All episodes of the Talking Pharmacy podcast are available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and from all your usual download sites. But for now, from all of us, happy Easter and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>